The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to Brutal Nation. I am your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, the beast from the not-so-far East, Tammy the Gur Underwood. How's it going today, sunshine? It's going. Since we were talking about your luscious mom. I hate you. <laughs> I mean, I really, really hate you. Uh, that's okay, because your mom kind of likes me. Somebody's got to. She's thinking about her and I cuddling together in bed, spooning, <sighs> her pushing her butt against me. Mm, it's hot. Are you done? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> but you got to speak more into your damn mic. I know. Jesus I realized Christ. that. I could hear myself this time. I have my headphones on. I realized I wasn't close enough to my microphone. That's right. God damn it. All right. So today you gave me Robert Picton. Yeah. Three part of this is part one, yeah. a part of fucking a million parts on this damn well, thing. Well, I could have put him in. Like he could have been a four-parter, but I condensed him down to three. Oh, okay, like condensed soup. Cool. Yeah. Campbell's right. chunky chicken noodle. <laughs> you are the chunky chicken noodle. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> That's what the doctor said when they gave you those antibiotics. No, dude. No, you're working I, on I Sandy can't Boulevard. eat chicken noodle soup anymore because I got sick one time, and I that's all I ate for like a week. And then when you throw something up, you just can't eat it anymore. Oh, did that happen on Sandy Boulevard too? <laughs> I hate you. Just asking for a friend. Yeah. Whatever, dude. <laughs> All right, take it away. Okay, so anyways, Robert, this this case is out of British Columbia, Canada, right? Freaking Canadians. Canadians. It's always something with a damn Canadian. Yeah, so downtown east side of Vancouver is infamously known as not only the poorest area in British Columbia, but in the entire country of Canada. It is a 10-block section of town that can't be described as anything other than, I mean, everywhere I read, urban wasteland. You know? <coughs> right, right. <clears throat> Worse than, you know, our downtown city streets. Damn. Yeah. So the... <clears throat> sorry. The streets of downtown east side are lined with pawn shops, torn up sidewalks, run down hotels. The gutters and streets are filled with garbage. And you can't go anywhere without seeing discarded drug needles and used condoms lying around. Which actually kind of shocks me, like, for, for reals. Because, like, when, yeah. when I was going up to Calgary all the time, and all through, like, uh, you know, the... Uh, the Alberta uh, province. Right. Um, it was extremely clean. And Calgary being right. a huge, huge city. Right. Even being in downtown Calgary, um, it was extremely, extremely clean. Oh, yeah. So to hear that about B- any part yeah. of Canada in general, like BC, it's it, it comes it, it kind of I'm kind of taken aback by it. I wouldn't imagine that any place in Canada was like that because it just seems like Canadians really kind of give a shit about where they're living. Not well, like yeah. Americans, especially around here, though. Yeah. Just throw garbage Entitled. everywhere. Entitled little assholes. <laughs> well, see, and, you know, because I was I was reading it, and it's like the locals actually gave that area that ten block radius a na- a nickname called Low Track. You know, ever we have Skid Row, they have Low Track. Um, hey, remember this. So you ready? Yes. Your Park Avenue leads to Skid Row. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of was, I know, the, was right? the 80s band. I love that song. <laughs> and that Ricky was a young boy. He had a heart of stone. Okay. 
anyways, uh, the epicenter of Low Track is where Maine and Hastings intersect, right? Residents in that area actually refer to that intersection as pain and wastings, probably for obvious reasons, right? Uh, the Bondage? No, no. S&M? Clubs? No. Drug needles, used condoms. What does that tell you? Um, sounds like a party at my house. <laughs> Just saying. Not anymore. No, we don't use needles anymore. Thank God disgusting. I don't find used condoms when I was cleaning. That would have just weirded me out. I should have bought a box of condoms and filled them with mayo. <laughs> and let them scatter throughout the house, like on my bookshelves. Under your bed. Under my bed, on my computer monitor, in the sink, in the bathroom. <laughs> outside no, in my backyard. <laughs> so, shut up. So the junkie population there fluctuates between five and 10,000, depending on various circumstances. Drugs of choice for these junkies, junkie Jones for, are crack, cocaine, and heroin. The drug trade is headed up by motorcycle gangs and Asian cartels. Each sect has its own turf, and nobody better cross the set boundaries without being punished somehow. That's right. We, we give you drugs a long time. <laughs> Do you like the crack cocaine? I did not know they had Asian cartels in Canada. (laughs) Oh, dude, like in the Indian population and the Middle Eastern population is just, I mean, there's a lot. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. It just is. It just is what it is. Huh. So, anyways, (coughs) although addiction doesn't have any gender or race preference, female addicts in low track have their own way of supporting their drug habit. By sucking dick. Yeah. More often than not, they roam the streets at all, all hours of the day trading sex for drugs. Oh, you Mostly. Should, you, 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 should, you should be able to relate to that. Well, you just do it, you just do it purely for the taste of it, but. <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Your new name is McDonald's. I, I couldn't help myself. Sorry. I'm on Sandy Boulevard and I'm loving it. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> Most, if not all of them, are walking skeletons of each, and each one has a haunted look. One reporter from the Seattle Times has said they are all on the Jenny Crack diet. That's awesome. <laughs> I know, right? And it shouldn't come as a surprise that safe sex is a foreign concept to the prostitutes working low track. As a result, the area has the highest number of HIV cases on the North American continent. In the late 80s, early 90s, the district surrounding Low Track passed laws to clean their streets, thus driving the prostitutes out. With nowhere else to go, they all converge on the downtown east side. And they, they, they have their own union now, pole smokers of, the, uh, of, of Canada. Uh, local, you, 18, local 169. Yep, local 169. <laughs> they all show up at the union hall. They're all, okay, Tiffany. Tiffany, yeah. you get to work third in Maine, okay? Um, remember, remember, you have a five-dick minimum. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically like in the early 80s and 90s, everywhere around this area, like, cleaned up their streets, so they all converged in that one 10-block radius. So then 1994, the federal welfare cutbacks and the overcrowding of mental institutes took their toll. That left more people short on cash, living in the streets, doing what they could to survive. This also caused a rise in drug use in the area. By 1997, a quarter of the population in downtown Eastside had tested positive for HIV. Yo, Eastside! <laughs> Eastside! No, 
I'm west side till I die. That resulted Oh, you're in- some kind of a side. <laughs> you're northeast side. Henceforth, Sandy Boulevard. I hate you. That resulted in the Canadian government implementing several needle exchange programs to help combat the problem. However, despite upwards of 2.8 million clean needles being handed out in low track every year, this program has failed to show results. And that uh, just bizarre. So, Lotrex Underbelly has an even darker problem than the drug addicts, dirty needles, and high homeless rate and cheap prostitutes. The area is infamously known for its kitty stroll, filled with minor prostitutes from 11 to 17 years old. I'm sorry, where is this at again? <laughs> Lotrex, downtown east side. I'll be back. Maine and Hastings. <laughs> they have Asians? They have Asians! They, they have, have Asians! Asians. <laughs> um, this is where I take my vacation. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. I'm just now everybody's like, oh my god, he wants little children prostitutes. It's a joke, motherfuckers. Yeah. It's just a joke. I'm not after kids. Jesus no, Christ. Not today. Chill the fuck <laughs> out. What? Scott's age range on his dating profile. <laughs> oh my god. 18 to 99. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Although, old enough to go to the store, old enough to get bread. Just saying. <laughs> old enough to pee, old enough for me. How about old enough to squat, old enough for Scott? Does that one work? <sighs> no. <laughs> so although some of these young girls walk the streets, most are actually held in what they call trick pads and lorded over by their pimps. Every day, people in low track see unfamiliar faces among the streetwalkers. Most of them are runaways who feel that selling their body is a better alternative to whatever hell they were living in. The rest are those who want to seek adventure and are called they actually call them Twinkies by those who have already been held cap- captive in the life. In 1995, a survey was conducted with the prostitutes working downtown Eastside, and the results were staggering. I mean, how do they even get that survey going? Like, excuse me, do you know. suck dick for a living? Can we ask you a few I questions? I think they passed them out at some of the shelters. You know, had you know, <laughs> I, just, I don't know how they did it, but I'm just, I'm just thinking to myself, prostitution's illegal. I right. think, I, and I'm pretty sure it's in Canada too. It's illegal. Oh yeah. So I mean, I mean, how does that work? Like, excuse me, are you a hooker? Um, no. What makes you think I'm a hooker? By the neon sign that says five dollars for a blowjob. That was my first indication. Strawberry. You know? And my name, your name is like Strawberry. Sucks a lot. So I just assumed. Yeah. No. All right, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you a cop? Do you have any crack? I'm just saying. I don't do crack, but if you had some crack, I I think I would. Um. Try it, maybe. <laughs> Did you, you have crack cocaine? Never done crack, never done heroin. No, I'm like saying. I said, you 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 work Sandy Boulevard just for the taste of it. And to get those numbers up. I mean, I was surprised when, when, when you said that you had 400 customers a day. That was just, my God, there, there mustn't be any traction left on those tires. <laughs> I hate you. I just wonder why your breath smelled kind of funny. <laughs> Fuck you, Scott. You know what? I will call you by all four names. <laughs> so anyways, these are the results of that survey. 73% of the women started prostituting when they were children. 73% are also single mothers with an average of three kids each. 90% of those had their children taken away by the state. And less than 50% knew what happened to their children. 80% 80 plus percent were had been born and raised outside of Vancouver, B.C., right? So by 1998, 
the low track was averaging approximately one drug overdose death per day. That is the highest death rate seen in Canadian history. It was Bob's fault. Oh, it's just yeah. Bob's turn. Okay, no. Yeah. Bob's turn. So despite all the dangers confronting those who live in low track, in 1983, prostitutes seemed to vanish from low track one by one. Those who called the area home realized there was an issue when the first couple of women went missing. However, it was another 14 years before the authorities acknowledged there was a trend to the disappearances. And by then, several dozen sex workers were gone, never to be heard from ever again. So here's the harsh reality of the situation. You know, individuals involved in the sex trade can easily be described as elusive by nature. A significant number of them entered the industry as teenage runaways. They found a way to be hidden in a crowd by changing their identity and address multiple times. Therefore, even with the help of a hook book, which is what some cops have who work the stroll, because they try to keep track of, you know, people out there. And plus, when you go to visit a new town, you go to the police station, they tell you who you can visit. Can I get a copy of your hook book, please? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Donna, she is excellent. I tell you what, I saw her once take on five decks, and she could suck the chrome off a bopper. I'm Sweet. And you have coupons? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'll take a coupon book. Best tourism it's called, ever. It's called Welcome to the Neighborhood. <laughs> Welcome to Vancouver. So anyways, it's difficult, you know, to keep track of specific prostitutes at, for any significant length of time. So when a hooker's body is discovered in a back alley dumpster, vacant building, or sleazy hotel, it's easier for the authorities to determine whether they were a victim of foul play or just another drug overdose. It's a waste of a perfectly good hooker. Right? However, when they just vanish, nobody can truly say whether their disappearance was by choice. But here's the harsh reality. More often than not, nobody cares. And that's true. I've said that a million times, you know, with the exception of, of course, Rochester, Rochester PD. Yeah, in New York. Yeah, it, it seems like no one cares, and I, yeah. we, we, I've mentioned this time and time again. Like when throwaway people, like homeless people mm-hmm. or prostitutes, get victimized, murdered, um, and things like that, it, it, nobody cares until the media starts what? making a big deal out of it. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden. The, we have a task force. Why? We've always had this task force. No, you didn't. You didn't have it until it was uh, the, until a news outlet said, hey, there's reports of a bunch of hookers dying or oh, disappearing. Yeah. That's when you got your task force. But before that, they're like, oh, well, just, yeah, it, hooker's gone. We don't exactly. care. Exactly. Hooker's dead. We don't care. Exactly. Hang on. I got to correct this typo here. Give me a moment. Okay. So anyways, um, in the beginning, when... When young women began vanishing from low track, there wasn't really any rhyme or reason to the disappearances. The first appears to be 23-year-old Rebecca Guno. The last time anyone... It's a fucked up name. G-U-N-O, or Guno, Guno, whatever. Guno? Yeah, I think it's Guno. That sounds like a goon. Like, like, like she should have like a freaking long-ass nose, you know, be built like a linebacker. Okay. Grunting. <laughs> Almost like you. But just, you, know, you, don't, you don't have a long nose, but... Built like a linebacker. No, I don't have the pursued nose, thank God. You grunt a lot, walk hunched over, scare children. I hate you. <laughs> so the last time anybody remembered seeing her alive was June 22nd, 1983. She was officially reported missing on June 25th. However, according to the information I gathered on this case, most of the other disappearances were not reported so early. Um, 
They were Sherry Rail, 43 years old, last seen alive January 84, wasn't reported missing till 1987. Then Elaine Arbach, 33 year old, last seen March 1986, when she told friends she was moving to Seattle, reported missing April because her friends in Seattle said she never came. There. <laughs> I had to clarify that one. Teresa Ann mm-hmm. Williams, 26. Last seen July 88. No, it was reported missing till March 89. 40-year-old Ingrid Suet. Last seen August 89. Wasn't reported until October 1990. Kathleen Watley, 39. Last seen 1992. Early June 1992, she was reported missing at the end of the month. Then, um... Because you didn't pay her rent. <laughs> right? When the rent's due and you don't pay, we report you. That's right. So, after Kathleen... Hey, come over here, pay rent, shit. <laughs> I ain't nothing to skate again, motherfuckers. Yeah. So, after Kathleen went missing, although other prostitutes died, none seemed to vanish for no reason for approximately three years. But then, the ambiguous pattern picked up again. 47-year-old Catherine Gonzalez... March 1995, she wasn't reported missing until 1996. Then you have um, Catherine Knight, last seen April 95, reported missing November 95. Wait a minute, Catherine Knight no, was not the a same serial one. killer. This is Catherine with a C, not Catherine with a K. Oh, oh okay, I thought she was yeah. in a boning room, which <laughs> would make sense if she's a hooker. She'd have a, her own boning room. Boning room. Just a way different kind of boning. <laughs> and she's not in Australia. <laughs> You're so dumb. I'm just saying. I'm just yeah. saying. Don't kill the messenger, motherfuckers. Then, you know, and then there was Dorothy Spence. Uh, she went missing in August of 95. Wasn't reported missing till the end of October that year. And then 23-year-old Diana Melnick. She was last seen early December. Wasn't reported missing till almost New Year's. Now, Diana's disappearance marked the beginning of another supposed hiatus in the missing persons cases. No unexplained disappearances occurred for almost a year. Then, in mid-October 1996, Tanya Holick, 24 years old, vanished, but she wasn't reported missing. Did you say Holick? Holick. H-O-L-Y-K. <laughs> and that is how the lesbian porn started. I hate you. <laughs> Anyways, and then there was 22-year-old Olivia Williams. She was last seen alive in December 96, but she wasn't reported missing until July 4th, 1997. Then you have more unexplained vanishings, right? Um, they, have, they started actually in the spring of 97. Um, Stephanie Lane, 20 years old, and she seems to be the youngest victim as of that point. She was admitted under observation on March 10th, 1997 for a drug psychosis episode. <laughs> the hospital released her the next day and witnesses recall seeing her at the Patricia Hotel on Hastings Street. But then she was never heard from again. Now, I looked at, I actually went on to search this hotel, right? Because I want to know if it was still standing. Literally, the reviews for it on TripAdvisor says, do not stay there with your family. <laughs> Just perfect. Saying. That's the perfect place. <laughs> now I know where I'm going to go on vacation. Let's stay right there. I know. <laughs> I think one of the saddest disappearances was that of Janet Henry. In the 80s, convicted serial killer Clifford Olson drugged and intended to kill her, but changed his mind for some reason. Almost 10 years later, she started calling Low Track home 
only to fall victim to another predator. Her Jesus. family last spoke to her on June 26, 1997. When they didn't hear from her again for two days, they filed a missing persons report. Could you imagine being the, you know, like an intended victim to survive, only become a victim again? Yeah, that's fucked up. That is like karma, man. That sucks. Um, I accidentally clicked somewhere. Oh, even though there appears to be a slight lull in unexplained activity for a couple of months... August of 1997 proved to be the most deadly. Three women were reported, three women were later reported missing from who had, were last seen in that month. Unfortunately, their, re- missing, their disappearances were reported more than a one year, and the authorities aren't entirely sure where or when they were last seen alive. Um, there was Marnie Frey. She was 25. She was last seen in August of 97, re- wasn't reported missing until September 98. Um, same with Helen Hallmark, and then Jacqueline Murdoch wasn't reported missing till October of 1998. So, after those three women went missing in August, the next victim, Cindy Beck, age 33, vanished in September. Like we've seen with almost every victim thus far, she wasn't reported missing until au- April 30th, 1998. So, it, it's just flabbergasts me about this. Flabbergasted. You know, well, but you and I have seen that before. You right, know? right, right. So, you know, so needless to say, even more people ended up going missing. As the summer of 1998 wore down, law enforcement officials in Vancouver were about to be thrust into their own nightmare. A nightmare that doesn't appear to have a resolution because there are still so many unanswered questions. Now, in September 1998, a local Aboriginal group contacted the Vancouver British Columbia authorities and provided them with a list they had made of alleged murder victims from downtown Eastside. Along with the list was their demand for an official investigation. But there's a problem. Apparently, when law enforcement officials went over the list of alleged victims, they quickly declared it was, quote, flawed. Some women on the list were dead. Yes. However, their death was reported to be from natural causes such as overdose or disease. There were also some, quote, victims who had willingly left Vancouver only to be found alive somewhere else. So in other words, a good portion of the alleged murders weren't murders at all, and some of them weren't even dead. Right? That being said, though, Dave Dixon. (laughs) Dixon Cider. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A detective with the Vancouver PD went over the list, and he found something that aroused his curiosity. He was so aroused by the Dixon Cider. I hate you. What he found was interesting enough for him to launch his own investigation. He began compiling his own list. He gathered the names of every woman who appeared to have vanished from low track without a trace. When he finished, he had a list of more than enough names to worry him. He took his concerns to his superiors, and they created a task force. That was the beginning of what wound up being a four-year search for the truth. So that was in 1998. People started going missing in 1983. Right? That's some great police work right there. Yeah. So the new task force started reviewing the cases of the disappearances of approximately 40 women that were still unsolved. The vanishings dated back actually to 1971. All the unexplained missing women hailed from all over Vancouver and were associated with all walks of life, from upper class to low track regular. With that extensive list, the detectives began searching for a pattern. They determined there was a pattern with approximately 16 prostitutes who worked low track, some of which had been missing since 1995. 
Although it would be quite some time from this point, the authorities made their first arrest. By the time they had someone in custody, the list of 16 became 54. All of those women disappeared sometime between 83 and 2001, and the task force would also grow to include approximately 85 law enforcement officials dedicated to that case. Just letting the law enforcement in Portland Metro know that uh, Tammy's not missing. She's just on hiatus for right now. I hate you. For like another day or two. Then she'll be back on Sandy Boulevard. <clears throat> so you might want to jot that down in your hookbook. I hate you. <laughs> what? I'm trying to help law enforcement. No need wasting your time on you disappearing when you haven't disappeared. Might be real hookers out there that disappeared. Help them out. I hate you. So, however, when they first came up with that list of 16 prostitutes, the only thing they were... They, the Vancouver PD debated was this. Did they have a serial killer on their hands? Right? No, they had him in their streets. No, right? <laughs> on the loose. Duh, on the loose. Okay, like so check goose. this out. Back in 1999, Inspector Kim Rosmo was known for creating a geographical profiling technique that inputted all unsolved crimes onto a map and highlighted potential patterns or, quote, signatures overlooked by the naked eye by other detectives. He was one of the first that suspected there's a serial killer at large in Vancouver. In fact, he gave his report to the task force in May of 1999. In the report, he highlighted there was an unexplainable spike in missing women in the downtown east side. However, the authorities dismissed his concerns of the geographical profiler. They released statements to the media indicating there was a strong possibility the women who vanished voluntarily left Vancouver searching for a better life. That's what the media said. But you know? that, 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 that's possible because if you're working some low-end area as a hooker. Right. Okay. And th- th- this isn't me making fun of hookers. It's just a fact of life. Let's say you're working on Sandy Boulevard like you. And, you know, so you're probably only charging, what, like 20? Uh, what do you charge for a blowjob? Like 20 bucks, 5 bucks, something like that, 15 cents, whatever the hell Tammy charges. Anywho, if you're an upper-end hooker, an escort, and you're like, let's say you're a Heidi Fleiss type of a girl, if you don't know who she is, just fucking look it up, um, you know, then you're charging like $1,000. She's the Hollywood madam. Yeah, the Hollywood madam. <laughs> you're charging like a grand just to look at the chick naked. Just to have her hold your hand. <laughs> and have her hold her, your hand, you know. Um, you're paying ten, twenty, thirty thousand bucks 30000 to, to bone this chick. Yeah. So why not, as a hooker, if that's your career choice, decide, hey, I want to be a better hooker. Yeah. Now, okay, and I know some of you out there are laughing about this, but think, think of it this way here, because this is how I rate job performance. You can go to work and you can do the very bare minimum just to right. get by, okay? That's a regular hooker. Um, or you can give 110% and you're just pushing to be the best that you can be. Maybe there's hookers out there that go, okay, right now I'm a Sandy Boulevard hooker and I work with, with Tammy, but... <clears throat> I want to be a downtown, uh, you know, high-rise penthouse hooker. I want to be a pretty woman. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so they're, 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 they're trying to kind of move up the ladder. I, I would imagine that there's some out there, is my bottom line, that are, that are doing that, going, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to, this, yeah. is, this is what I'm choosing to do. I want to, you know, uh, up my game so mm-hmm. I can up my prices. That's all I got to say about that. Is that all you got to say about that? Yep. Okay. Except I'm so glad you haven't been arrested this week. Because <clears throat> I've been here. <laughs> Being a hooker. And I'm not a hooker. <laughs> Stop telling people that. Sir? I'm. Look, either I'm a hooker or I'm a sir. 
You're a male hooker, sir. Why your goatee does look fabulous. I'm going to need you to calm down. <laughs> you're so stupid. <coughs> choking on a chicken over here. Oh, you're choking on something. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's going to affect your job review at, at your other job on Sandy Boulevard. <laughs> Fuck off. She got all choked up. <laughs> <laughs> My reviews are going to go down. <laughs> <laughs> Would not recommend. <laughs> There's your Yelp review right there. One star. <laughs> so, Inspector Gary Greer actually told the press, we, we're in no way seeing there's a serial murderer out there. We're in no way saying that all these people missing are dead. We're not saying any of that. Now, de- but despite being so publicly dismissed, Roosevelt maintained his theory. When he continued to push other task force members to take him seriously, he was given a demotion. Subsequently, he resigned from the PD and sued the department. Okay. But that, that lawsuit was later dismissed. But still, it's like he say, he's trying to say in 1999, hey, guys, there's a pattern. And the other inspectors are being like, nah, you're full of it. Right, no, right, right, right. Yeah. So now to say there was friction among task force members investigating low-track disappearance is an understatement. They also faced other obstacles that hindered their efforts. For instance, the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System, which is ViClass and Canada's RVICAP, wasn't able to track a missing person unless there was some sort of evidence linking it to foul play. Until that point, there was an utter lack of forensic evidence. They lacked specific things the system needed. They had no human remains. There was no definite crime scene, and there were no specific dates when the women went missing. You know who did, they really needed? Hmm? And it would actually make sense because at this time here, they, uh, well, I guess they, they, they were independent from England in the 90s because they got their independence in like the 80s. Uh, Canada did. Um, they needed that detective and that judge. Oh, no shit. And yo. I can never Constable, remember. Constable, what's his name? And Justice Justice. Yeah. <laughs> if they had them, I tell you what. That case would have been solved yeah. in 30 minutes or less. They're fast. The one the that dominoes. was on Shipman and Colin Norris. Yeah. 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 I tell you what, I still have mad respect for that constable. No shit. Because no. that dude there went in. He didn't just kick ass. No. He kicked the door in. He said, well, okay, I'm going to get this motherfucker. I'm going to do it now. Well, and what the weird thing is, is when he went after Colin Norris, he was like, I already got this in the bag. Because remember when they did Shipman, they didn't, they didn't even know how to properly go about exhuming a body right 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 and so he figured all that shit out and then cut here comes colin norris and i bet that guy goes bitch i got this <laughs> i would love to see a documentary where that constable goes into a place like vancouver bc or anywhere in the world it just opens the door and looks at everybody and goes get out of my way bitches <laughs> get out of my way <laughs> just get the fuck out of my way yeah. i'm here i'm gonna solve all your cases yeah right now because that dude was Good. Holy shit. Yeah. Very, very good. I wish I could remember his name, though. I can never remember oh, it. Me neither. My brain's my brain leaks. Right. So. so here's the sad part, right? Other prostitutes and pimps faced charges if they came forward and cooperated with the investigation. For example, there was one point during that investigation when the task force positively identified a man for assaulting approximately five prostitutes over two months. However, no charges were filed because the victims refused to file complaints for fear of facing charges themselves. Right, which I honestly... And this which is, I think is stupid. This is my, 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 my thought, and this is across the board no matter where, where a hooker is. There should be an exemption to where if a crime is perpetrated against you, 
that you can go with no repercussions, even if it was during the act of a crime, provided it's nothing like, you know, hey, I was molesting a child and this guy killed, you know, tried to kill me. That's a little different. But if it's something like hooking. Yeah. You know, or maybe dealing drugs or something like that, you should be able to report the fucking crime. Yeah. And I I don't support drug dealers by any means. No, but that's why a lot of prostitutes don't come forward because they don't want to get arrested themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's messed up, you know. And I do. You know, I I got a lot of love for for, for the hookers for what they do only because there had to be something that led you down that road. Yes. That made you become a prostitute. Well, and you'll find out a little, I think it's in episode three about these victims. Uh, most of these victims anyways. And it's sad. Does it, did they come with coupon books? No. The, they'll jiggle my jubblies. I fucking hate you. Continue on. I got to grab an Amazon package. Okay. Now, even though there was a significant amount of media coverage for this case, the resources available to the task force were limited. It's as if the detectives wanted to acknowledge there might be a problem, but the higher ups really didn't want to do anything about it. They're like, "Eh, okay, problem. Who cares? Now, despite the many obstacles the detectives were encountering, they tried to move forward with what little resources they had. They met with family members of the alleged missing women in June of 1999. And the purpose of those meetings was because they wanted to collect DNA in the event any remains were ever found. You're being loud over there. You know that? What'd you get me? Oh, it came already? That was quick. Yeah. You keep reading. I got to read the instructions on this. Yeah, good luck with that. So anyways... They combed through databases from coroner's offices all over Canada and down into the United States. However, they didn't stop there. They poured over records going all the way back to 1978 from the following places. They looked in witness protection programs, mental health facilities, drug rehab facilities, hospitals, and AIDS hospice facilities. They even went through burial records at Glen Haven Cemetery in British Columbia. Then they received information from law enforcement officials in Edmonton, Alberta. Apparently, they had records indicating from 1986 to 1993, they had approximately 12 unsolved murders of prostitutes in their area. They also found out that the small community of, I think it's called Agassiz, A-G-A-S-S-I-Z, British Columbia, Uh, reported the unresolved deaths of four hookers from 1995 to 1996. However, upon closer inspection, none of those women were on the list of missing low-track prostitutes. The task force never quit. They continued to try everything they could with what little they had. However, with each passing day, they faced a harsh reality. They literally had nothing to go on. There wasn't any information that could point them in any specific direction. They were clueless about what might have been going on and wound up blindly chasing chasing shadows down dark alleys. Now, the task force was working hard to compile data with the little information. Now, despite their diligence, they learned about the disappearance of four more low-track prostitutes that happened between October and December 1998. There was Julie Young. She was last seen in October 1998. Wasn't reported missing until June of 1999. Then you have Angela Jardine. She was last seen mid-November 1998 and wasn't reported missing until early December. She was developmentally disabled with a 10-year-old's mental capacity. Oh, kind of like you. (laughs) 
That's right. At Twisted Blue LLC, we hire the mentally disabled. They have to. Their boss is one. Oh, out! Ha! <laughs> the shit I put up with. The shit you put up with. You can call me a hooker all morning. <laughs> Tammy. Oh, my God. Tammy. Yes. <laughs> Love you. I know. I know. <laughs> Oh, my God, I'm going to piss my pants. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The shit I put up with. Whiner. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, anyways, Michelle Gurney, she was last seen December 98, reported missing December 22nd, 98. And then Marcella Creason, last seen December of 1998. She wasn't reported missing until uh, January 11th, 1999. Um, and the last time she was seen was when she was released from jail. Now, mm, I see a similarity there, too. Yeah. Nobody see, saw up. you for a while after you were released from jail. Shut up. I think she turned up on fucking Sandy Boulevard. I hate you. So even as four more names were added to the list, the task force could remove a few of them. They accounted for five of the women between September 99 and March 2002. Not all of them were dead. However, the names could still be deleted from the list of alleged victims. The first name to came off, come off the list was Patricia... Gay Perkins. <laughs> so gay. That's such a gay name. Jesus Christ. Anyways, she was 22 years old in 1978 when she vanished from Low Track, leaving behind a one-year-old son. The bizarre thing about Patricia's case, she wasn't reported missing until 1996. 18 years after she was last seen. What the fuck? Okay. Yeah. Okay, honest to goodness, all jokes aside, and I always have to say that because I make so many fucking jokes. Before. Yeah. He's just going to make another joke. <coughs> How dumb do you got to be to sit there 18 yeah. years later and go, hey, yeah. where the hell is she anyway? Yeah, I haven't seen Patricia. Her son's here, like, yeah, but she's nowhere. Yeah, her son's getting awful big and you know he's graduating <laughs> high school, getting ready to go to college. It's weird. We haven't seen her in 18 years. Yeah. That's, you know, hey, Floyd, have you seen her? <laughs> I know, right? 1996. 18 years later. Fucking weird. I man. couldn't believe it. Then, three years later, on December 15, 1999, the authorities actually published their list of missing low-track prostitutes. A short time later, the Vancouver Task Force received a call from Ontario. It was Patricia. She told them she was not only alive, but she was clean and sober and living her best life. So, that was a good thing, right? Oh, she lived? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, she had actually left Vancouver and cleaned up. And, and left everything. her kid behind and everything. Okay. I guess, yeah. That's, you know what? Yeah, that's a little fucked up. That's very fucked up. Yeah. Because, okay, so I talk about my kids all the time. And especially, you know, like my son. Oh, yeah. Uh, his mom technically did that to him, left him behind. Yeah. And it, you know, was I was going to say, didn't she call you when you were on the road and said, you need to come back and take care of your kid? Okay, so after she left the first time, uh huh, <coughs> um, you know, she she took Jake back for a very short amount of time, and uh, so I was living in Palm Springs, California, and she was up in in Renton, Washington, and she gives me a call. You need to come pick up your son. Yeah. Oh, like now? Yeah, now. And I had to go pick him up, and then that happened again. I gave her plenty of opportunity, but yeah, that's what she did. She freaking bailed, which is that's. Neither yeah. here nor there, but it's just jacked up. You don't do yeah. that to your fucking kids, man. Exactly, exactly. I just, there's just certain things. My kids are pain in the ass, okay? Lord knows, yes. But <laughs> I, I will say this about my son is that he does try very hard. He is autistic. 
Um, well, the Asperger's dealio. Yeah, he's yeah um, on the spectrum. You know, but he does. <coughs> cough, cough, cough it up, fuzzball. It's my sinuses. They won't stop draining. <laughs> Diet. Yeah. But he does try very, very, very hard. Yes. You know, and uh, he's, he's actually, he's, he's a good kid. Yeah. You know, all in all. I mean, he has his moments, but they all do. Yeah. They, yeah. they all do, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, you, just, you don't leave your fucking kids behind. Yeah. behind. And matter of fact, if you're listening to this and you choo- you're choosing to leave your kids behind, seriously, put a gun in your mouth. Fuck yourself. Yeah, you don't, I mean, I understand wanting to get out of the life, but if you're getting out of that life, why would you leave your one-year-old child behind right. there, well, in that life? Well, here's what you do. You, you, okay, you want to get out of the life, that's fine. You talk to the people who are taking care of your kids. Hey, look, man, watch my kid for, let, let's say, six months. Right. You know, and then you go get your shit together, and you come back and you get your fucking kid. You don't or leave if, your kid behind. Yeah, it's a that shit move. Or, Either that or if you can't take care of your kid, give your kid up for adoption. Yeah. Because there are people out there who want children. Nobody wants my son. <laughs> Dude, I know. I, I They don't a, want your offspring at all. I put a $20 bill around his neck and said free to any <laughs> home. And then people are like, no, that's good. We're good. <laughs> they paid me 50 to take him back. I was going to say, they, did, they have, did they not want their money back but pay you to take him back? They did. I know. Yeah. I, I always told people, you know, if anybody ever kidnapped my son, he's so bullheaded. They'd be like, you know what? You can have him back. <laughs> yeah, they brought him back. And here's your 20 back, sir, and an extra 50 for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do. I make fun of him all the time. But we I do. really do. I, I, I love my kids. It. I fucking adore my kids. And I know. My, my son's actually really freaking amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, because uh, I came over Thursday and did some cleaning in the morning. Then I had to leave so my son can go to work. And then I came, I was coming back Thursday night to stay the night because you had the inspectors coming the next day and you didn't know what time. So he texted me Thursday night and says, so what time are you going to be back over? I said, oh, probably not till about midnight. And he goes, oh, just want to know if you wanted pizza. I'm like, ah, oh, no, that's okay. But thank you. Yeah, he, you know, he's a really super, he's a yeah. super good, really caring and loving kid. Mm-hmm. And it cracks me up because he tries to take care of me so much. Like, there's times that I come home and I just, I don't want dinner. I just want to go to bed. He's like, Dad, you have to eat. Yeah. And like the third night in a row that I did that, he's all, you can't be going to bed without eating. I said, I'm just not hungry, dude. I'm exhausted. But uh, yeah, he he gives it his all. Oh, the bottom yeah. line, like I said, man, I have no respect for anybody who just leaves their fucking kid yeah. behind. That's, that is a total fucking dick move. Yeah. If, if, if you can't take care of your kids, don't fucking have them. Mm-hmm. Like, especially in this day and age, you have things like Planned Parenthood, at least down here, and the, the free condoms. You have free condoms. Mm-hmm. You get, you know, the, the free birth control and well, things like that. Well, we even have a safe haven law, where if you don't want your child, you can leave them with any law enforcement or health care facility. I mean, you can literally walk a child into a nursing home and drop your child off in a nursing home because they're a health care facility. Wait, hold on, really? Yes. Jake and I are taking a trip when he gets <laughs> home from work. <laughs> That's fucked up. That is. Because you know you ain't dropping him off for his well-being. You're dropping it off to pick up on another woman. Maybe. <laughs> Don't judge me. I know you. Don't judge me. <laughs> so the next name to be removed off the list was Rose Ann Jensen. Now, she suddenly vanished from low track in October of 91. Unlike some of the other missing prostitutes, she was reported missing not long after her disappearance. The task force officially included her name on their list in 1998, though. In December of 1999, detectives were going through a national health care database when they came across the now 50-year-old woman. 
Constable Ann Drennan released a statement to the media a short time later stating that Rose had left downtown Eastside for personal reasons. It doesn't appear she knew she was being looked for. Okay, so another one, alive. In August 1994 and April 1999, the family of 34-year-old Linda Jean Combs filed missing persons reports for her with the Vancouver authorities twice. However, they weren't aware that she had died on February 15th of 1994 from a heroin overdose. Apparently, when her body was found, she didn't have any ID, so she was listed as a Jane Doe. In a sad turn of events, Linda's mother was shown a picture of Jane Doe being held in the morgue in 1995. However, <clears throat> she wasn't able to positively identify the remains of those of her daughter. The girl was so wasted away from disease, chronic narcotics use, and severe malnutrition. It wasn't until September 1999 when DNA samples from the family were processed to a database when her remains were finally identified. And that's sad. That's fucked up. I know. Didn't even recognize her own daughter. Now, a similar situation occurred with Karen Ann Smith. She was reported missing on April 27, 1999. Originally, the authorities thought she was one of the many missing low track. As it turned out, she died on February 13th of 1999 while she was a patient at Edmondson University of Alberta Hospital. Her death certificate listed the cause of death, the result of heart failure directly related to hep C. Now, however, because she didn't have any form of ID at the time of her death, law enforcement officials couldn't cross her name off the list until they received the results of a DNA comparison. Now, on January 1st, 1997, 24-year-old Ann Wolseley's mother reported her missing. However, according to the official report, the actual date she was last seen alive was unknown. Then in March 2002, <coughs> right, which is five years later, the Vancouver Task Force received a call from Montreal. It was Ann's father letting them know she was not only alive, she was living well. Because of a bitter divorce, he didn't have any contact with Ann's mother. Therefore, for five years, he and Anne were completely unaware that their mother had reported her missing. In fact, the only reason they found out her name was on the list was because the suspect had been arrested by that point and the media had ramped up the reports on the case. Even though detectives could remove five names from the list of missing low-track prostitutes, it seemed it wasn't long before the name of another alleged victim took their place. No matter what, the task force had to keep adding to their growing list in the beginning, they still had nothing to point them toward where these women were or what had caused their disappearance, right? So then <clears throat> they, they actually had a growing list of potential predators. In cases of missing or victimized prostitutes, it's not as if law enforcement officials don't have any suspects. The problem is they have a lot of suspects, right? You know, because you got to figure anybody who's a John can be a suspect. Or Scott, or Steve, or Brian. John with a little J. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. If you get a John with a little J, do you charge him half price? That's not what I meant by a little J. <laughs> <laughs> Never forget it's your so last show. Small. Your last show when John was talking about how hookers are lined up down the block, and then all of a sudden this one walks by and goes, John, <laughs> she's calling you. <laughs> I I still tell, uh, we still joke about that when we're in studio and practicing, <laughs> um, especially because we're working with our new drummer, uh, oh, yeah. Tony. 
And we're still cracking up about that shit. Just, just dying. Did your prostitute catch up with you, Johnny? Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, yeah. you know she had her clear high heels on. She it was... did. I loved them. Shoes. <laughs> good times. All, you know, all she was missing was the goldfish in the heels. That's awesome. Oh my god. <laughs> However, prostitutes are unwilling to press charges against their victimizer, or they absolutely refuse to testify in court. Many fear being arrested themselves because they were engaging in illegal activity at the time they were assaulted. This seemed to be the case with the task force in Vancouver. With their growing list of alleged victims, they had another growing list of potential predators. The first person they considered was Michael Stephen Leopold. In 1996, the 36-year-old man was arrested after he assaulted a low-track prostitute. During the attack, he beat her severely while he tried to force a rubber ball down her throat. Probably good to shut the fuck up. (laughs) According to reports, someone was passing by the area when they heard her scream. When they went in the commotion when they went in the direction of the commotion the assailant was frightened away he turned himself into the authorities approximately three days later they did have a slight problem he had been in cussie since he surrendered himself to the authorities in 1996 and their list had low track prostitutes reported missing after he had been arrested however they felt since the unexplained disappearances went back to at least the mid 80s they had to inspect sexual sadist who was known for assaulting local sex workers right now, before his case was settled, he revealed his sadistic fantasies to the psychiatrist appointed by the courts to evaluate his mental capacity. According to the official testimony of Dr. Roy O'Shaughnessy, Leopold bragged about the fantasies he had of abducting, sexually assaulting, and killing prostitutes. However, he maintained the attack in 96 was an isolated incident, a, quote, practice run. As a result, the task force ultimately removed him from their list of suspects. Even so, on August 25th, 2000, after the jury found him guilty of aggravated assault, the judge gave him a 14-year prison sentence, stipulating he would receive the four years he was in jail waiting for his trial as credit for time served. So, at least that freaks off the streets for a while, huh? Maybe. Maybe. But it was really me. I know it was. Then the second, you can like this one too. The second person the task force took a closer look at was 43-year-old Barry Thomas Niedermeyer, a native of Alberta. In 1990, he was convicted on charges of pimping and pandering a 14-year-old girl. When he was released from prison on those charges, he made it clear he had a score to settle with prostitutes. Yo, me and Notorious P.I.G., we be pimping all the time, well, yo. Well, my question is, is, why would you let people know you had a score to settle with a prostitute because you got arrested for pimping and pandering a minor? Yeah, no shit. I mean, that, that, that's next level stupid. Next, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's like saying, man, I got a score to settle with my neighbor, Bob. I'm going to go and shoot him. And then he dies from a yeah. gunshot wound. You know, the, 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 the suspect list is going to be pretty, pretty narrow at that point. They're going to be like, um, I think it's Tyrell. Or yeah. whatever his name was, you know, put it put in the appropriate name. But we all know he was black. Um, <laughs> just, it's messed up. <laughs> no, seriously, but, uh, you know, we, we we knew we we know it's this guy here. Why? Because he just got out of prison. His neighbor Bob died the next day from a gunshot wound, and he said, "I got a score to settle. I'm going to shoot him." Yeah. Who do you think they're going to look at? They're not looking at anybody else, yeah. motherfucker. They're looking right at you. Exactly. Dumbass. So then he was so. You know, he was released, 
and everything. He was arrested again in 1995. However, this time it wasn't for anything related to the sex trade industry. Apparently, he was running a tobacco shop in Vancouver and he was busted for selling contraband cigarettes. Oh, After that's receiving stupid. a hefty fine, he was forced to close his business. I know, right? That's lame. <laughs> lame. Well, then check this out. In April 2000, law enforcement officials in Vancouver arrested him again for attacking approximately seven prostitutes. His list of charges included kidnapping, assault, unlawful confinement, <laughs> robbery, sexual assault, and administering a noxious substance. The That's my is- son. I didn't know my son <laughs> had that crime going for him. Because, God damn, he admits that noxious substance constantly. <laughs> he administers it. Yeah, no kidding. Now I'm going to tell him he's a criminal now. That's right. So the thing is, although he had targeted prostitutes working low track, none of his, they could not find a connection with him with any of the victims on their list. Now, Constable Ann Drennan issued the following statement. It's impossible to say at this point whether or not Niedermeyer may be related to those cases. Certainly, he is a person of interest, and he will continue to be a person of interest Actually, as of that point. Niedermeyer, what, what was his first name? Um, Barry. That's definitely a white name. That's beyond Bar- white. Barry is so white, it's but, pale. And Niedermeyer? <laughs> Come oh, on. God, yes. That, Thomas, too. <laughs> that is like, yeah. uh, once again, superpowers. He took white people and that, he said, that's He's that's obscenely white. <laughs> he's whiter than I am. God, he's so white, even Notorious P.I.G.'s looking over going, yo, we got to get over with him because he, he's obscenely white. Like, that's he's right. whiter than white. <laughs> so, in addition to the list of named suspects, the task force also had unidentified perpetrators. For example, on August 10, 2001, they announced to the public they were searching for an unidentified male responsible for attacking a 38-year-old victim outside her low-track hotel the week before. According to a spokesperson for the Vancouver PD, quote, during the attack, the man claimed responsibility for sexually assaulting and killing other women in the downtown east side. Apparently, the woman successfully escaped from her attacker by jumping out of his vehicle. Even though she gave the authorities an excellent description of the man responsible for the assault, they still weren't able to track him down. They also had information for a database compiled by the Downtown East Side Youth Activity Society. According to reports, DAS maintains a database they update, update daily, referred to as a bad date file. No, seriously. It includes multiple pages of reports given to them by local sex trade workers who have been injured or threatened by their unnamed Johns. You know what? You should look into my folders on the shared drive because I have the bad date file that contains pages and pages of people not to date. (laughs) Um, And the reasons why. (laughs) I'm just saying it could be helping out society right now. That's a bad date file right there. Don't date her. Because that bitch will only order a fucking side salad and you want a, <laughs> you know, a steak. And don't right. date her because she's got gas. Don't date her because you got to meet her mom first. Her mom's a goddamn psycho. <laughs> her mom grabbed my crotch and said, are you hung like a bull? I'm like, um, no, I'm hung like I'm the hell out of here. That's what I, Look at the time. I think my house is burning down. I need to go right now. That's where you grab your phone. It's not even ringing. And you go, hi, Mike. No, no, I'm on my way. Uh, my, my water heater exploded. Your phone didn't even ring or light up, and I can see the home screen on it. I'm sorry. It's Mike. I got to go, man. My, my, my place is flooding. I don't know what to do. I don't, is my insurance going to cover that? Um, hold, no, I'm sorry. I, we'll, we'll have to call you later. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'll call. I, I promise. Okay, bye-bye. Meanwhile, you're looking over your shoulder going, Mom's eyeing me and rubbing her nipples. That's not right. That's, that's not healthy. Daughter's licking her lips. 
You hear her mouth something that looks odd. Neat, 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 neat. Well, she, you see her mouth something that's oddly like, there goes our threesome for the night, Mommy. And you're like, um, I'm disturbed. I'm going to go home and freaking drink and hide and lock my doors. Thank God she didn't have my address. Curl up in a ball in the fetal position. Yeah, freaking, you have goddamn Sarah McLaughlin playing in the back. In the arms of an angel. And you're like, bad touch, bad touch, bad touch, bad touch. And the shower is like, you're, you're in the bottom of your bathtub. It's the showers, you're like, you know, pouring on. You're like, it was bad, bad touch. You're I feel so violent. That's my bad date file. Yeah. So, anyways, the incidents in the bad date file can range from verbal assault to physical assault and brutal attacks. To mom grabbing your crotch. (laughs) Yeah. That was a brutal attack. This database was developed as a warning system for anyone engaging in prostitution in the area. However... It isn't lost on those who compile the data that their efforts are probably most likely in vain. And a warning system that nobody should date Donna. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Like, don't even hurts. take her to Taco Bell. Just, uh, just don't, because mom's going to want to grab your crotch and ask you if you're hung like a bull. <laughs> going to run for the border. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully she does it. She can explode and give me freckles. <laughs> That's how you get pink eye. Yo get a Taco Bell. Yo get a Taco Bell. She gave me pink eye. I can't even. I gotta adjust my headset. So, before the end of 1998, detectives on the task force thought they'd finally received their first most credible lead since they began their investigation. It came from 37-year-old Bill Hiscox. He's <laughs> it better and better. C-O-X, I know, right? His cocks was so big. <laughs> he was hung like a ball. <laughs> Do I look like a gullible or I even almost, a gullic cat? I almost snorted again. <laughs> <laughs> so when his wife died in 1996, he tried to console himself with alcohol and drugs. He was sliding further and further into his addiction when his foster sister reached out and found him a job working in Surrey at P&B Salvage. Now, the owners of the establishment were brothers David and Robert Picton, and Robert went by Willie. Um, and I can't pronounce this word, but they're from Port Coquitlam. Let's go with that. It's just another He has a Canadian name. So Bill's foster sister was Robert's on-again, off-again girlfriend in 1997. Although Bill worked at the Savage Yard in Surrey, just southeast of Vancouver, he picked up his checks at the Picton's Pig Farm in Port, in that town. Jesus Christ, that's a mouth to say. Picton's Pig Farm oh in Port. Oh my God, port. you don't even know. <laughs> this gets even better. According to Bill, the farm was, quote, a creepy-looking place guarded by a vicious boar that weighed approximately 600 pounds. He said, my son. <laughs> he said, I never saw a pig like that who would chase you and bite you. At you. It was running out with the dogs around the property. No, I say the same thing about my son. <laughs> he chases, he bites, he growls. He pees on you. It's all good. Yeah, he pees on the neighbors. He said, I peed on that tree. I own them now. Yeah. So anyways, Bill told the authorities he'd become suspicious of the Picton brothers after he had read a few newspaper articles about the missing low track women. He described Robert as a pretty quiet guy, hard to strike up a conversation with. But I don't think he had much use for men. The vehicle Robert drove was an old converted bus with dark tinted windows. Now, wait. Bill said it was Willie's pride and joy and he wouldn't part with it for anything. He used it a lot. Can you just say Chomo, Van? That is 100% a Chomo Lester Van right there. (laughs) 
And on the side, it's oh, that, 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 that's the wrong voice because it's Canadian. On the side, it said Freak Andy, eh? <laughs> with I, with I, the airbrush Mustang. <laughs> and it wasn't like suspicious at all, eh? Like it had shag carpet in it and a, and a disco ball, and he was playing Led Zeppelin 4, eh? So, and, but he, you know, I noticed like a lot of kids went in and out of his van, eh? And hookers yeah. too, eh? Now, check this out. This is what you're going to find funnier and shit. The Picton brothers also operated a registered charity known as. Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Oh, my God. That's the name of my new bar. <laughs> I'm going to order. I, I swear to God. No, that's brilliant. Don't laugh. I'm serious. This isn't even a joke. I'm serious. And so I wanted to open up a gay bar called Bend Over Billy's, and its acronym would be Bob's, B-O-B-S, oh my right? God. But if I can open one <laughs> called Piggy Palace Good Time Parade. <laughs> oh, my God. That's genius. That's Genius! Oh my god! Oh my god! I gotta stop. That is freaking <laughs> awesome! Holy shit! Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't any of the researchers for names think of that either? No marketing person I've talked to. No the research. Nobody. Nobody gave me this name. No. Nobody said I have a great name for a bar. It could be a gay bar. It could be a strip club. It doesn't matter. You call it Piggy Palace Good Time Parade. And that I'd be like, oh, my God, that's genius. Here, take my money. Take it. Take it. <laughs> I'm investing now. <laughs> yep, that's right. Find the building. We're buying a building today. <laughs> so, no. So You know what? All of you are fired. All of you. I'm going to pee. Stop it. No, everybody's fired because nobody gave me Piggy Palace. That is freaking awesome. Okay, I know this dude is like a serial killer, okay? But that's freaking brilliant. Well, it's wait, catchy. Wait until you check this out. So the Picton, okay, so they operate this society. According to the registration on file with the Canadian government, Piggy Palace was a nonprofit society intended to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions <laughs> on behalf of service organizations, oh sports organizations, and other worthy groups. <laughs> That is a direct quote from their file. Yeah. The, oh, I just. I, oh, I, good Lord. Good Lord. I got the vapors. Good Lord. <laughs> Dying over here. That is freaking awesome. Yeah. The special events. <laughs> so, I, I, I can't even stop. I mean, this whole part is funny to me, but the rest, I mean, is not, obviously. So, Bill actually told the authorities those so called special events usually always took place in a building on the pig farm the brothers had converted and named Piggy Palace. However, they were nothing more than drunken rays, and the featured entertainment was a revolving door of low-track prostitutes. That's now, even better! Yeah, wait, check this out. Rumor has it, and this is just rumor, Gary Ridgway once attended a function there before he was apprehended and charged with multiple murders as a Green River killer. Nice! Yeah. Nice! I'll, I'll admit, if I... Even not knowing what was going on there. Yeah. If somebody said, dude, you want to go to a party at the Piggy Palace Parade? I'd be like, let's go. Yeah, the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. Yeah. That's right. I'd be like, Grab I'm grabbing my passport right now. We're yeah. making a trip up to BC. Yeah. Because it's only like a seven or eight hour. It's like a seven hour drive. Six six or seven hour drive from my house. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. Because you can make it from like here up north yeah. to like Burlington in roughly five hours or so. 
and it's only a couple hours north of that. Oh, okay. So, like seven hours, you're in BC. You're, you know, hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Shake my <laughs> prostitute booty. Wiggle, 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 wiggle. <laughs> Only if you wear the two-tour tube top. So, it turns out the Vancouver authorities were already aware of the Picton brothers. In 1992, David Picton was convicted of a sexual assault charge. He received one month probation and a $1,000 fine. According to his victim, she and David were in his trailer on the farm when he attacked her. She only escaped when another person came into the trailer, which distracted him long enough for her to get away. In 1998, the authorities of I that town... just had a flash in my head of somebody getting into his trailer going, Hey, this pig over here's got a got, got lipstick on. He's like, where? Where? And she's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Adios, bitch nachos. Look, there's a tree. Where? And then, boom, she's out. She's like, thank God. Thank God he saw something shiny. <laughs> you snorted. Piggy, 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 piggy. You okay? So, yes. Right. So in 1998, the, their local police authorities motioned the court for an order to have one of David's dogs put down. They cited the Livestock Protection Act. However, nothing came of it because the proceedings were dismissed and there's no explanation either way. Then after being in an auto accident in 1988 and again in 1991, three civil suits were filed against him for damages and he settled all three out of court. So not long after organizing the nonprofit and opening up Piggy Palace, David and Robert, along with their sister, Linda Louise Wright, yes, very white. My God. <laughs> were taken to court again. This time they were being sued by the local city officials for city zoning ordinance violations. According to the official complaint, the pig farm was only zoned for agriculture use. However, when they altered a large farm building on the land for the purpose of holding dances, concerts, and other recreations, which sometimes recorded approximately 1,800 attendees. Now, after hosting a New Year's Eve party on December 31st, 1998, officials filed an injunction against the brothers, which banned them from having any more special events. According to the court order, quote, police were henceforth authorized to arrest and remove any person attending public events at the farm. That makes me sad, man. Well, but then in January 2000, they lost their nonprofit charity status when the Canadian government with the government after they failed to file the mandatory financial statements. That's pretty petty for the uh, for the Picton Piggy Palace. I know, right? <laughs> it was hard. Picton Piggy Palace. I know. It was hard for me to the get to that. The Good Times Society. <laughs> good Times with Piggies. Yeah. That sounds so gross. Squeal like a piggy no. boy. However, there were even more disturbing accusations against Robert. According to reports, he was charged with attempted murder in March 1997. Apparently, during an incident on the pig farm, he stabbed Wendy, Wendy Lynn Eistetter. That e is I-S-T-E-T-T-E-R. My God, that's super What? Okay, <laughs> you know what? I'm actually proud of him. Let me tell you Wendy why. Wendy Lynn? <laughs> because normally there's a lot of black going on with a lot of these crimes. Yes. Like, not the, not, not the perpetrators so much, because that's definitely a white thing. Serial yeah. killers are. But usually victims, and especially prostitutes and things like that. This here is a field of white. It's just that this is like... Gemini yeah. Christmas. By the way, did I, did I tell you about my new rap album coming out? Yes, you did. Yeah, it, it says uh, obscenely white and notorious P.I.G. Plain white rapper. I know. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so in 
So apparently during an incident on the pig farm, he stabbed Wendy, a known prostitute and drug addict, multiple times. She told detectives on March 23rd she and Robert were on the farm when he handcuffed her and began stabbing her. She said she wrestled the knife away from him and was able to escape after she stabbed him with it. She ran away from the farm and down the highway when a passing motorist picked her up at approximately 1.45 a.m. And she said, that's $20. Right. You got $20? She was actually taken to the nearest emergency room to have her wounds tended. In the meantime, he had gone to Eagle Ridge Hospital to have his stab wound treated. After the police arrested Robert and he was arraigned on charges, he was granted and released on a $2,000 bond. However, in January 1998, the charges against him were dropped and there was never an explanation all as to why although i'm sure we can all figure it out she probably refused to testify oh totes you know so before the stabbing incident bill had already considered robert to be quite a strange character however after the assault he became even more suspicious according to the statement he gave the vancouver detectives robert didn't just stab a known prostitute there was also quote all the girls that are gone going missing and all the purses and ids that are out there in his trailer and stuff well, that and he, quote, frequents the downtown area all the time for girls. Now, investigators officially logged Bill's statement, and then one of the task force detectives drove him out to the pig farm to have a look around. According to a couple of reports, when the detective left the farm, he vowed to, quote, push the higher ups all the way to the top to investigate. Several news reports after that indicate the authorities conducted three official searches at the property only to walk away with nothing each time. Despite the complete lack of evidence, Robert and David remained on the list as persons of interest. However, they were never put, they never put the brothers or the farm under surveillance. In the meantime, their list of missing low track prostitutes kept getting longer and they were thinking there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Now, by the end, by the time the world entered the new millennium, the Vancouver Task Force detectives had an Bands of bliss that included upwards of three times the number of, different, number of disappearances than they originally had in 1998. Some of the fresh additions to the list had not been seen since the 80s. However, their disappearances were just being reported. Not only was the list expanding backward to earlier years, it was expanding forward to include more recent low-track prostitutes vanishing. Despite the warnings law enforcement issued to sex workers, about the potential dangers, more and more of them were never seen or heard from again. Um, there were some from 84 to 96, then some from 97 to 99. Um, and then even though the Vancouver Task Force might have been feeling their efforts tra tracking down the missing prostitutes was most likely a lost cause, they continued to collect their data. However, there is one bright spot in their dismal investigation. They had a flashlight. <laughs> Whatever. Or in my son's case, a flashlight. <laughs> Don't get me. No. <laughs> they noticed a different trend. Was it possible the increased publicity was making a difference? One thing's for sure. It seemed as if a missing persons report was being filed on a person sooner after they were last seen than ever before. Well, if we can beat 18 years. I know, right? Not saying much. I'm just saying, motherfuckers. <clears throat> not saying much. I know. Then um, one of them was actually <laughs> reported missing like the same day she was last seen. That was a shocker. Yeah. So then, you know, so as their list keeps growing, they actually had no shortage of 
they weren't like experiencing a shortage on their list of predators either. Keep in mind that the disappearances of load track prostitutes went on for nearly 20 years. Therefore, it should go without saying the Vancouver Task Force had to seriously consider the possibility some of the earlier missing women had fallen victim to an already identified sexual predator. Let's face it, there's no shortage of predators in the Pacific Northwest region, period, which includes Vancouver, B.C. And in- it also includes uh, Catholic churches. In fact, <laughs> Catholic churches are the worst. Is that the fact? That no, there were many serial killers, some of whom we've already covered already. Some of whom we've covered already vying for the public's attention around the same time sex trade workers were vanishing from downtown East Side. And serial child molesters. I'm talking to you, Father O'Malley. <laughs> Why touch- got to be O'Malley? Stop touching that little boy. Right now. <laughs> right now. We know you're out there in Forest Grove. I hate you. I, I saw the child molestation station. <laughs> I'm just saying. Saw it. Mount your eyes. Okay. So the first person they considered, um, ow, the first witch who might command the most attention was none other, none other than the Green River Killer, right? Right, right. So they considered him, but then they had to cross him off their list because even though, um, However, they did report that he had been in Vancouver at least once. After all, it's rumored he had attended one of the special events at Piggy Palace. Uh, after investigating the possibility, he had they couldn't find any substantial evidence linking him to the missing prostitutes. And not linking him to any piggies. Squeal like a piggy, boy. <laughs> this little piggy went to market. You got a pretty mouth, boy. Squeal like a piggy for me. I hate you. <laughs> and then, of course, they looked at Dayton Leroy Rogers. Oh, now he's a disgusting piece of yeah, shit. Yeah, he was the, you know, he was the Moala Forest killer who had a huge foot fetish. Oh, I, no, you know what? I wasn't thinking of him. I was thinking of the one that, that touched little kids that was also from here. Oh, that's Wesley Allen Dodd. Wesley Allen Dodd. Okay, yeah. no, I take that back. Because, yeah, he, still, killing the hookers and taking their yeah. feet, that's just, that's a bit much, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, even though he was arrested um, in January, oh, no, he he was arrested in August of 97, so uh, he was quickly ruled out as a suspect in the later disappearances, but it didn't take them long to reject him as a potential suspect for the earlier cases as well. Then, of course, who else do you think they looked at? Can you guess? Can you guess? Can you? Can, can you? Can you? Me. No. Who? Our friend. Oh, Keith. Keith. Hunter Jesperson. Yeah, gotta be Keith. Yeah. They, I mean, because, of course, he was from... He is from BC. Yes, he is. Um, but uh, <clears throat> oh my god, I'm sorry. <gasps> he also was born in a time when it was a uh, BSK <coughs> before serial killer. Oh yeah, before serial killing. Yeah. So like Dayton Leroy <laughs> Rogers, Keith had been in custody since the day he turned himself over to the authorities. However, the Vancouver Task Force still considered him a potential suspect for the earlier disappearances, especially since, except for two victims, the women Keith targeted were known sex trade workers. After going over Keith's past and tracking his trucking logs, though, they weren't able to find anything to connect him to their missing pers- prostitutes. He was officially ruled out as a suspect. Now, we actually talked to Keith about that, remember? Because I told him that he was... Did we? Yeah, because I told him he was look, looked at as a suspect up there, and he was like, okay, but when? And, you know, and he was like, this is when I moved, and, you know... <coughs> oh, yeah, he wasn't yeah. even in the country then. Yeah, yeah. he wasn't. Okay, I remember now. Yeah. I remember the conversation. So, then they also had with three high-profile serial killers already eliminated from the list of perpetrators, the task force considered other suspects. The fourth name on their list was George Waterfield Russell. 
Over three months from June to August 1990, he murdered three women in Bellevue, Washington. However, after going through his files, they quickly ruled him out, mainly because he killed his victims in their own homes, mutilated the corpses, and posed their bodies in a shocking display. Is that bad? No, but I can't wait to cover him. In what? Snail trails? I hate you. (laughs) Next, there was Robert Lee Yates. I'm also going to cover his case, too. Uh Notice I said case. Yeah. Anyways. Masturbating over there thinking about these guys. Actually, I'm going to cover all these cases eventually. But he murdered 13 prostitutes in Spokane area for 23 years from 75 to 98. Since he wasn't arrested until April of 2000, he was a more viable suspect for the low-track disappearances. However, after a thorough investigation, they couldn't find anything indicating he had been in Vancouver, B.C. at the time the women vanished. In fact, they couldn't place him there at all. So then there's John Eric Armstrong. In 92, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy and was on active duty until receiving an honorable discharge in 99. Armstrong was suspected of murdering a woman in 91, but the authorities could never prove it. So between 1992 and 1999, while he was serving in the military, it's believed he murdered at least 11, if not more, sex trade workers. God damn, However, man. only the deaths of five prostitutes killed in Detroit have been confirmed. Five's too many. One's too many, to be honest. Right. So Armstrong was considered a strong suspect for the low-track disappearances. As in Neil Armstrong? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 19... That's bad. Because he wasn't arrested until January 2nd, uh, 2000. During his confession, he claimed he murdered prostitutes from all over the globe, including Seattle, Washington, China, Thailand, Hawaii, North Carolina, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Virginia. No, I'm pissed off, and that that is a waste of per, per, perfectly good Asian vagina. I know, right? It's like China, Thailand, God, Hawaii, dang, even Singapore, Hong Kong. Damn. The, 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 I, I'm, Do you pay I'm more for that in Thailand? <laughs> Apparently, you got to pay less. You get your money back. Money back guarantee. All right. So he actually claimed he had approximately 30 victims. All of them were prostitutes, male and female, in the locations where he was stationed and or deployed while serving in the military. However, after the Vancouver Task Force combed through his statements, they noticed he never claimed to have a victim in Vancouver. And when they tried finding any evidence to the contrary, they came up empty-handed. Then, of course, they actually had one closer to home. The Vancouver Task Force then focused their attention on a suspect closer. Ronald Richard McCauley had already been convicted twice on rape charges. In 82, he was sentenced to a 17-year prison term. He served 12 before he was granted parole. Almost a year to the date, in September 95, he was released on September 17, 1994. Almost a year to the date, he was arrested in September 1995 and charged for committing another sexual assault. The jury found him guilty in 96 and he was sent back to prison. He was never officially charged for murder, but that didn't stop the Vancouver authorities from considering him their prime suspect in the murder of four women. The Remember when I talked about the missing women or the bodies in Agassiz? Right. He was, they think he did those. Jesus Christ, yeah. man. That's fucked. Yeah. So he wasn't a suspect in the deaths of those he wasn't just a suspect in the deaths of those four women. The Vancouver authorities officially declared him their prime suspect in the July 1997 for the disappearances of Catherine Knight, Catherine Gonzalez, and Dorothy Spence in 95. However, they couldn't find enough substantial evidence to file formal charges. Then a few short years later, they zeroed in on another more, vis- more viable suspect in <clears throat> all of the low-track disappearances. This new suspect was not unfamiliar to them. 
In fact, they considered him as a perpetrator years before when the press and public figured out they had him in their sights and let him go. They were not very pleased. Well, when the public found out that they had him in the sights and let him go, they were not very pleased. It wasn't long before information linked, leaked about how this suspect was still considered a major person of interest, yet he had not been placed under surveillance. And once that little detail was made public, the shit hit the fan, and they received understandable criticism. So that's the end of part one. Thank God I'm falling asleep over here. I have to sleep already, so there you oh, go. Oh, man. All right, boys and girls. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Or check out my porn my, my, my porn site. <laughs> Did you say porn site? Yeah, at www.hotscottmess.org. Dot O-M-G dot net. Forward slash Piggy Palace. <laughs> Forward slash Piggy Palace. I'm going to be on that forever. I swear to God, I'm going to oh open up a bar. God. I'm going to call it. I'm going to open up a nightclub. It's going to be called the Piggy Palace. We're so bad. That's brilliant, actually. Yeah. Log on to Facebook. Join Citizens of Brutal Nation and interact with us, man. Let's have a good time. Let's talk about this yes. stuff. Like, seriously, if you, if you get on there and call me an asshole, I don't care. Let's, let's, let's just yeah, have fun. Do it. I do it every day. Yeah. I'm <laughs> used to it. This show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast, they're lying, thieving bastards. And we'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.